Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Alim Mahabir, your host for this podcast episode. Today, we are very grateful to be joined by Sue Ann Barat and Alia N. Ranjit Singh, who will be speaking on their book, Dogla in the 21st Century, Adding to the Mix, published in 2021 by the University Press of Mississippi. Sue Ann Barat is lecturer and head of the Institute for Gender and Development Studies, University of the West Indies, St. Augustine campus. And Alea N. Ranjit Singh is assistant professor in the Africana Studies Department, Brooklyn College of the City, University of New York. A very warm welcome to the podcast to both of you, and I'm very excited to be talking about your book. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thank you. Indeed, we are. First off, this is a question I ask everyone. Could you please tell me a little bit more about yourself, I guess, going beyond what I said in the intro, you know, your personal story, how you came to be who you are today, and what experiences prompted you both to write Dogla in the 21st century? So do you want to go go ahead or? Uh, You know, we, uh, yes, I think Aliyah can go first and then I can follow. And this is how we do everything with Dogla in the 21st century, really a team effort. So over to you, Aliyah. Thank you, Sue. Um, yeah, so my name is Olia Ranjit Singh. Um, I'm currently um, right now in Brooklyn, New York, you know, where I teach at Brooklyn College, but I am from Trinidad, right? True Trini. Um, and I am Dougala. So this book, um, it was very much personal. Um, and as Sue and I, you know, when we're, when we are retelling how we came, you know, about this book. Um, well, you know, we were both students at the Institute for Gender and Development Studies, where we were both pursuing our PhDs. And um, we would often spend nights in the seminar room of the department, um, you know, getting our work done. And one night, you know, we were there with another colleague um, and we, you know, we began to talk about, you know, what it means to be mixed. Um, again, I am Dougala. My father is of um, um, Indian descent. My mother's of African descent. Um, Suwan herself is a mixed race Dougala and our other colleague also mixed. Um, so I began to share about my own experiences, particularly looking very similar to my siblings, but they, you know, were understood and are still in many ways understood as more of a Dougala than I am. So, you know, we began to discuss, you know, well, is, you know, being mixed or is being Dougala more of, is it genotype? Is it phenotype? You know, what are the, you know, the very different and of course, similar experiences that Dougala face Douglas face in Trinidad. And out of this discussion, or these discussions, you know, this book was born. A lot of work, a lot of, you know, interviews with Douglas in Trinidad, Douglas in New York City. Um, and I think it co- took us a couple years well <laughs> to get to get everything um, done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, you know, I've had experiences throughout my life where people, you know, as I said before, have questioned um, my background, have questioned my ethnicity, have questioned if I'm truly Dougala, particularly based on the ways that they understand how a Dougala is supposed to look like, right, in terms of, you know, a phenotype, hair texture um, in, in particular. You know, I've, I've had friends who have said to me, you know, and they're talking about Dougala people, and I'm like, well, hey, I'm Dougala. And then they would say, well, no, you know, I mean, I mean like Dougala, Dougala. <laughs> so again, this is why this book was um, 
it was personal and you know i co-wrote it with the the best co-author um sue um who i'm going to pass the mic to right now yes indeed um you know it we, we, we spent a lot of time reflecting on what it meant to be mixed and if and what it meant to be enough and not only in terms of mixedness we were thinking you know we were really we were really contemplating self or gender um, ethnicity class and so much more and for me being you know a, a very multiracial person in a place like Trinidad and Tobago identifying as both mixed and identifying as black but encountering as Aliyah was saying you know those experiences where people do come up and ask you some very pointed questions about your phenotype about your heritage about your hair and your face and your eye shape and everything things that you might not have thought about and with those experiences as part of you know that informed our conceptualization we decided let's talk to douglas or people who identify as douglas so that they can talk about their experiences in every way um, we have been, it took us, uh, Aliyah said several years, I think it took us a total of about five years to bring the story together because we really wanted it to be empirically and theoretically sound. And you would see in the book how we really did dedicate a lot of time to that. And Aliyah and I had both fun and pain um, trying to make sense of what is a very complex and complicated experience, not only in the Southern Caribbean in particular, but definitely in the diaspora. So uh, we're really happy to join you, Aleem, to talk about this because even now, after the publishing and having follow-up conversations, Douglas really do express themselves as both a, an experience of, uh, you know, great joy and fulfillment, but also living in a place of challenge and nuance and complexity. Thank you for that, um, you know, great uh, introduction. Um, I can say myself, I'm Trinidadian and I know how direct we can be with our questions. We go straight up to their face and ask you something extremely, you know, personal and, I, I think a lot of people say, you know, we have no shame. So um, I, I think that's a question. Um, me personally uh, have also um, can relate to being from a family that is made up of a mix of Indian people and African people. And it's a, a common uh, case throughout many people in Trinidad um, and many other places in the Caribbean. And that's something you do talk about uh, in the book and uh, as you mentioned the diaspora and one of the central questions you talk about is you know and as you brought up just now what is Dogla and I'm wondering in the book um, in what ways it might be uh, similar or different from other conceptualizations of mixedness and hybridity. Um, I will jump in and, and, and Aliyah can also join me here. Alim, we spent a lot of time reflecting on established definitions of Dogra. If you look in the book, um, we looked at historical definitions. We look at how it has evolved. We look at what other Dogra scholars would have mentioned. And then we came up with our Dogra categorizations and we mused about it, not so Aliyah, musing about you know, how people describe themselves as authentic 50-50. One, 
apparently Indian parent and one apparently African parent who can be clearly, you know, identified by descent, then the multiracial, then the phenotypical, which was people who were called Dogla but weren't actually, you know, one in one um, African parent or one Indian parent um, in terms of that biracial mix. But um, I think uh, what is very important to note is that for one to be Dogla, one must have, as we say in the book, the default and the modifier. And one does not necessarily have to have an experience of mixedness as it engages with whiteness. And Aliyah can really elaborate on how that stands out in a place like the diaspora, that one is mixed, but one is not necessarily, you know, mixed with white or white only. Yeah, you know, as Sue said, the the default and the modifier must very much be present. And this is why in the book, we also discussed the Dugla as beyond the black-white binary. Um, in terms of scholarship on you know, mixed race and mixedness, it often centers that black-white binary. And of course, the Dugla is very much beyond that. And I think what makes the Dugla Dugla, of course, is that Caribbean context, right? The Dugla was very much, you know, formed, you know, within the Caribbean, right? We described the Dogola as, you know, this um, 19th century post-colonial construct. So Caribbean-ness is very much, you know, important there as well. And this is why, you know, when the Dogola migrates, the Dogola moves, um, crosses borders to the diaspora, um, we see that Dogola-ness isn't easily recognized. And this is why, you know, we we took a lot of time, you know, trying to, well, not trying to, because I think we did it very successfully, <laughs> um, but, you know, very much trying to, well, well, understanding the ways in which Douglas in the diaspora make sense of themselves, again, in a space where they are not easily recognized and understood. Indeed. And, and Alim, I mean, we, we might invite you here as we, as we tend to do, um, Aliyah and I in our style to reflect on your own experience. You said you live in a in a in a Dogla configuration coming from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, you know what that experience is like for you, uh, because we see the personal as profound and also political. So I wonder, from your experience and from reading the book, did you recognize yourself in that in the text, and and did the discourse resonate with you? Um, as you read about what it means to be a Dogla, just to consider your question from a very, um, you know, experiential perspective. Oh, I didn't expect to get so personal, but I'm sure. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, um, as you talk about in the book, phenotypically Indian, um, but uh, a lot of people in my family are um, mixed because my, um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, he uh, died at when my when my father was at a, a young age, and my grandmother remarried uh, to an Afro uh, Barbadian um, um, a migrant. Yes. And so, I is a eclectic mix of my family. There's Indian people, um, Douglas, um, people who are Trinis, people who are Bayesians. and I I think um, as we see in more and more today that. Um, your hybridity mixedness seems to be more part and parcel of Trinidadian society, Caribbean society uh, as a whole. Um, um, other than that, uh, my significant other, you know, is phenotypically um, black, and I know the product of our relationship. 
you know, if it continues, hopefully, um, will be Dogla. So a, a big part of the reason I initially became intrigued by the book is really getting to know, you know, the unique experiences, thoughts, and, and attitudes of persons who um, consider themselves Dogla. So it, it might inform my own behavior and practices if I were to become a parent, you know. And I, I think the book definitely delivers on that, you know, there's so much things I learn about, you know, what it means, um, the, the different challenges that you talk about, um, even some of the painful experiences of, of exclusion. It's something, you know, talking to my family members, I sort of, you know, we we talked about briefly, but we didn't go about it in depth. I, I, and getting to know that through the book, I think it, it was extremely resonant and it had a lot of thought provoking provoking ideas and useful recommendations that I could, you know, probably, you know, impart on my children uh, in the future um, if that happens. So I, I thank you for, for, for doing that and for writing the book. That's great news. And I think that the Douglas we spoke to, right, Aaliyah, they would, it would touch their heart because I think that was their intent. Someone like yourself uh, who can deal with the next generation of Douglas. Yeah, and who could very much understand, you know, that, you know, being Dogla, as Sue had said at the beginning, you know, it can be a privilege, but there's also some trauma, you know, um, involved there, right? Um, and you mentioned some of the experiences um, that we discussed, you know, in the book, some of those challenges. So again, on one hand, you know, it, it can be, a, you know, privilege, you know, this mixedness, but then again, the trauma, and I think it's very much steeped in these understandings of belonging, right? To whom does a Dogla belong? You know, and in um, a, a presentation I had done a while back, um, I started it off by playing um, Split in Two, right? So that Calypso by the Calypsonian, the mighty Dogla, you know, and he says, you know, well, if they're sending the Africans back to Africa and the Indians back to India, he says, well, what are they going to do with me? They might as well split me in two. Right. So, again, you know, that, that, that most of these challenges are based on these understandings of, you know, not being enough or being enough or belonging or not belonging. Yes, very much so, um, Aleem. So we are very happy that um, the our purpose, for, uh, but also more so the, the purpose that our respondents expressed, um, is really, you know, comes to bear in the lives of people like yourself and others who will encounter the book. One other thing I wanted to add before you raise your other question was that there is a lot of negotiation, navigation, or as we assert, maneuvering of mixedness, in this case, Douglas, but all mixed people, because you, you may have listeners who are indeed not Dogla, but, but mixed otherwise. And we suggest that mixed people in different societies, maneuver different influences, pressures, requirements, presumptions, and for different reasons and in different ways. And I think that's really important to understand about the essence of Douglas, this kind of not just liminality, but maneuvering one's experience daily uh, to just make sense and to find to find oneself. And find how one understands, as, as Aliyah was saying, belonging and enoughness and so much more. I'll jump in off uh, what you said. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, the term uh, maneuvering. I'm 
wondering if you could go more in depth as how some ways uh, um, a person who is Dogla might um, maneuver and what ways they might engage in, in that. Yes, of course, of course. And and what we'll do is um, we can talk about maneuvering as it happens, let's say, in the Caribbean, Caribbean homeland. And then sure. we can also talk about maneuvering as it happens in the diaspora. And of course, this intersects. So um, as you will see in our writing, we c- contemplate how people maneuver to, within, and away from these uh, stimuli, these influences, these expectations, these social spaces and places, and how this maneuvering is deliberate. It's meaningful. It's a, it's a, it's a strategic act, and that strategic act, uh, one might say, it's it's almost. And Analia can correct me here. I, I, this is just striking me now. It's almost emancipatory in a way that one maneuvers willfully. Uh, Alia, what's your take there? Um, I think in some ways it can be emancipatory, right? In in others, um, you know, particularly for those persons who maneuver because they refuse, um, they refuse racial accounting. It may not be emancipatory in that way, as they're unable to, or you know, they refuse to, um, you know, account for their existence. Um, but again, just the idea that they can <laughs> maneuver, it could be emancipatory. So I just took that argument like full circle, right? I, I started where you started and I came back around. Um, yeah, it, it could be, yeah. And, you know, a big part um, that Alia and I ha- have in- incorporated and that we when we speak to people is that when one maneuvers mixedness, especially as a dogla, where the remember we spoke about default, the default is considered blackness, the modifier is considered Indianness, or if one is multiracial, any other ethnic group that is non-black. Mm-hmm. One also maneuvers anti-blackness. And so a big part of that maneuvering is very political at the level of the person and their interpersonal relationships and how one wears uh, blackness on one's body. And sometimes people don't like to encounter that because, of course, it brings up histories of racism and colonialism and all that goes with that. Uh, But jugglers have a, a very poignant and pressing experience of anti-Blackness, be it expressed by uh, other people like themselves, members of their uh, Indian family, members of their African family, members of society in general, members of white community, whatever community they go in. So when they sometimes make deliberate acts of maneuvering to a particular perspective within a set of perspectives or away from a set of perspectives, they are negotiating privilege and deprivilege or privileging and deprivileging, if you know what I mean. Uh, Aliyah, am I clear on that? Because I I know I can get carried away sometimes. (laughs) No, no, you are clear. And I'm really happy that you you brought up the the topic of anti-Blackness. Um, you know, oftentimes we talk about Dogla and we, we don't speak about, you know, anti-Blackness. Um, just, you know, the history of, of that term, right, rooted, of course, in the Bhojpuri, which is a Hindi dialect, right? I mean, that term, it is rooted in anti-Blackness, right? Um, so, 
I'm really glad, you know, you said that, um, Suwon. Um, I completely, you know, agree with you, right? So, you know, this maneuvering, um, which may occur as a move to a racial system or a move, you know, from or move, you know, within these. Um, and, you know, just going back to your point about it being, you know, sort of emancipatory, um, you know, in many ways, you know, I, I do agree, right? Because it is, you know, the skillful, deliberate, meaning-making, you know, um, act, you know, that Douglas can very much, you know, engage in. And, you know, particularly for those who, for those Douglas who leave, who leave the Caribbean, they leave Trinidad, they come to spaces, you know, like New York, where Douglas isn't easily recognized or very much understood. We see that there are those Douglas who maneuver to the default, right? And, you know, Sue has been um, really great in, in reminding us about the modifier and the default. And of course, the default here is blackness. So blackness, of course, which is modified by indigenous. And, you know, for um, for those Douglas who maneuver to blackness um, is because, you know, they are not easily understood, of course, as Dougala. They are not easily understood, of course, as mixed, right? Because, you know, they are indeed, you know, mixed with blackness. And of course, you know, they are entering into, you know, not just a new a new country, right? United States of America or a new space, but, you know, a, a, a place where there is a very different, you know, history and process of racialization, where if you are mixed with black, you are black. But in the Caribbean space, you can be mixed with black and you can be Dogla, right? right? Dogla is a legitimate, you know, um, category, right? You know, in, in that way. So I'm going to pass it back to you. Yes, yes. Uh, so they negotiate how much, uh, when one maneuvers uh, uh, Alim, we would mm -hmm. assert that the Dogla maneuvers how one experiences that that starting theme belonging enoughness identity and affiliation with family and friends and community be it in caribbean homeland spaces or the diasporic spaces like the united states new york city right um very articulate responses i, I like the teamwork the back and forth all are going along very good um and i'm wondering if you could expand on some of the unique experiences, the unique challenges um, that come with Dogla mixedness, uh, especially um, when it comes with in, in, in living in the diaspora um, versus a place um, like Trinidad, where Dogla is more culturally um, seen and accepted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, before you elaborate on the yeah, diaspora, I think you have a lot, to, I think you have a lot to uh, elaborate there, but I just wanted to jump in and say, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the Caribbean homeland, it is not as stark as Aaliyah's examples will give you, but it is a very, very much, um, when it is challenged, it's very hurtful, and when mm -hmm. it is privileging, it is very joyful. So within the Caribbean, like Trinidad and Tobago, one may find oneself confronted as, as absolutely rejected, or one may find oneself, oneself, you know, presented as absolutely embraced. And I just wanted to put that as a little background layer, and then turn you over to Aliyah mm -hmm. to really talk about what is that pressing kind of negotiation in the diaspora. Yeah, thank you so, um, so much for that, Sue, because as you were speaking, I was reminded of that one interview of that um, young woman 
who um, in her interview, she spoke about, of course, you know, being Dougal in Trinidad. She attended convent and there was privilege, you know, that that came with with being mixed. And of course, you know, being in, you know, very in, in privileged spaces in Trinidad. But then, of course, you know, after leaving Trinidad and, you know, traveling to the global north, you know, she did not experience any privilege whatsoever, right? Um, so, you know, what you just said reminded me, you know, of that, that, you know, privilege in one space may not mean privilege in another space. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, other experiences, right? I spoke before about, you know, maneuvering blackness, maneuvering defaults. And again, you know, um, and this is very personal as well, right? Leaving Trinidad, migrating to... Um, to New York City, where um, Dougala could be easily recognized, particularly in those Caribbeanized spaces, right? Flatbush, you know, Brooklyn, yeah, right? People may understand who I am, what I am, how I'm mixed, where I'm from, but then other spaces where Dougala is not easily, you know, recognized. um, We see that, again, for, you know, the Dougala who is, of course, mixed with Black, Blackness is the default, and of course, being in this space where uh, it is understood that if you are mixed with black, you are black. We see that for, you know, for, for some Douglas, right, particularly those who are less phenotypically Indian, right, they are not quite modified um, by Indianness, you know, in that way, we see that they default to blackness. And, you know, um, this is something that I do in New York, right? I default to blackness, right? I do understand myself as a black Douglas, you know, as a Douglas black Caribbean woman, but um, it can be a challenge because, you know, sometimes I think, well, you know what? In defaulting in this way, I'm actually not recognizing my father, who is this Indo-Trinidadian man that I love, you know, and this entire side of my family and this entire side of my culture. You know, I'm, I'm not giving credence to that, you know, um, in defaulting, in, sorry, in maneuvering, you know, to the to the default. Um, and, you know, of course, well, there are those Douglas who are, you know, um, who are adequately, you know, mixed. So in, in that their phenotype is very much ambiguous. And for those Douglas, they can actually maneuver this ambi- ambiguity. Right. So I remember there was this one um, young woman we interviewed and she said, you know, well, listen, you know, one day I could be the Indian girl. One day I could be the Jewish girl. Right. Depending on the ways that she she could manipulate her hair, for instance. Right. Um, and other, you know, phenotypical features. So, again, you, you know, there are those Douglas who are able to, you know, enact maneuvering. Right. In, 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 in that way but only those Douglas who are adequately mixed enough. Good. Yes. And again, you know, the, yeah. And then, oh, you know, the, go ahead, Sue. Sorry. Um, I'm no, sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. What struck me as you said that was um, I wanted to draw attention, uh, Aline's attention to the constant debate about Nicki Minaj's ethnicity. So Nicki Minaj is essentially a Dogla, right? She, if you look at her, her history in Trinidad and Tobago, and who her parents uh, are. 
uh, but people keep asking questions all the time about what she is and how she looked this way and her eyes and her face and the hair. And, you know, she did something that Douglas talked about in maneuvering. She, every time she's asked, she said, I, I don't know if this is censored, but she said, you know, I'm a bad bitch. And those are her words. <laughs> <laughs> she said that she wouldn't answer. And that's a deliberate move we suggest based on our uh, a sample of respondents. But you can see it manifest. She's a superstar. She's, you know, known globally. Her name, her last name is Mirage, and they changed it because it wouldn't sell, you know, in that diasporic space. So right. look at somebody like her who, you know, she definitely is quite privileged, you know, quite popular, celebrity. Of course, her talent as a rapper is the reason for that, but she's beautiful. You know, she has, one might say, a whole lot. Of course, she's in the rap game, so there'll always be haters and lovers, and we know that that's part of the entertainment. But when it comes to her personhood and people asking about where she belongs, as Aaliyah was suggesting, you know, I've seen people identify Nicki Minaj as Japanese when her eyes look slanted, or probably she's mixed with white, or some people in the Caribbean trying to educate people and say, oh gosh, she's a dogla. Um, and also another example is, is the vice president. You know, people spend a lot of time, how do we call her? How do we call her? And for us, okay, she's a dogla. But people, right. it's pretty simple. But I think yeah. that those are very yeah. popular examples, not so earlier yeah. that Definitely. Yeah. And racial accounting can be tiring for the Douglas, you know, like what are, what do I say? Okay. In 1838, right. A fatal, you know, right. Do I go to, you know, do I, you know, go all the way to, you know, 1838, right. Um, the legacy of African slavery, the plantation, right. Um, it can very much be tiring. And this is why, you know, there are some Douglas who maneuver, Right, they resist that racial, you know, accounting, and you know, again, there are those who maneuver to blackness, um, and then there are those who, um, you know, in maneuvering to blackness, this blackness is also political, right? Particularly being, um, you know, a mixed race person, of course, living, you know, in the United States of America, particularly at a time where there is a call for Black Lives to Matter, and of course, you know, understanding, you know, oneself you know, in this space, um, you know, as I don't want to say understanding oneself as black, you know, I, which I do. Right. But, you know, this realization that the privilege that you, you, you may have held in Trinidad, you do not hold it here. Right. That you are, you know, you are a non-white body in the United States of America and you will be regarded as such. So there are those who default to this political blackness right here, you know, in, in the U.S. as well. Um, yeah, I um, I agree with you um, when it comes to the examples you raised of uh, you know, Nicki Minaj and Kamala, uh, the, the president of the U.S. I, I think we do in, in Trinidad or in the Caribbean at large where, you know, Dogla identities, you know, make up at least a some persons in the population, a significant proportion of the population, we do tend to take for granted that those people are Dogla, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, is often um, by the black-white, you know, sort of uh, narrative um, is often used to describe them in, you know, in Western cultures and, and 
you could and i i also like the example you give up how they you know Nicki Minaj they maneuver this identity these identities um to their advantage um well and as Alia also alluded to at the same time there still are these you know very conflicting and complex uh feelings uh surrounded surrounding identity and i think you mentioned at one point uh, just now a lot of participants posed the question am i mixed enough i i think um in the book you know you say that uh fundamentally i have a quote here fundamentally douglas must be indian enough to be dogla and at another point in the book you mentioned the dogla body cannot can be said to not be african enough not indian enough not mixed enough so i'm wondering if you could um you know unpack more um some of these underlying dynamics that you know you know bring about these questions about being enough in the first place yes of course um alim alia wrapped up her last observations about the diaspora talking about political blackness and that that kind of circles this whole idea of am i mixed enough which by the way was our research starting research question right um if where one occupies a mixed body a dogla body that can look different as our colleague Fernduan Regis who wrote about what, the first the Trinidad dogla um and every dogla does not look the same way that might I, I think I spoke programmer there but forgive me uh we doglas look different and 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 one looks different within the same family Alia was talking about her own personal experience and fundamentally what happens is that when it comes to mixedness because of the history and the politics of that history around africanness and indianness because of racisms and rejection that occurs of blackness even ideas of indian purity etc for one to be dogla of course one would be mixed with blackness africanness ie uh but one must be sufficiently modified one's body especially here less so skin color because douglas can be a range of skin colors and if one is very light one quickly becomes spanish and if one is very dark one is closer to to africanness than anything else but hair texture modifies so that person must be sufficiently modified to be seeing the mixedness on their body and i will give you an example of what i mean a little a few years ago i went to an establishment in trinidad i don't want to call establishments because this is public and i was just i was i was getting some keys and i stood there and i signed my name suan barrett and i'm just minding my own business and the proprietor was looking at me very intensely and i thought it was odd i thought maybe something was up with my clothes or i had something in my face and and this woman is an indian woman who was looking at me and she was looking at me and looking and then as i paid and the item was ready she said oh i see the parrot now you was a kind of dogla and i was like <laughs> i was like yeah i'm a trini and i was trying not to have to engage in what was coming next which is to kind of explain yourself so that example showed how mixedness that modification of what is my blackness um is read on my body by another member of my community 
familiar with Douglas. Now, why is it political? If one insists, like Aliyah spoke about, you know, I want to account for every member of my dynamic, beautiful family. And so I say that I'm mixed. I say that I'm Dogla, but my phenotype does not fall in ambiguity or closer to Indianness or other modifier, other combined modifier. One might say, well, are you running away from the most marginalized? Are you a victim of anti-blackness yourself. So that's something that Douglas negotiate. Now, on the other hand, if one claims to be black and, 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 and maneuvers to the default, there is a consideration of denial of, of who you are and how you are mixed and, and where you really rest. So really and truly, that being enough, one is one can be not enough of anything to fall anywhere, or one can be sufficiently and insufficiently at the same time is something that changes across contexts. So I think that's what we are trying to illuminate in, in, in that section or sections across the book. Uh, Ali, I want to jump. <coughs> Sorry. Jump yeah, in. Um, I just want to correct one thing I said before. Um, so I, I messed up the history. So 1838, the first Indian indentured laborers to Guyana, 1845 Trinidad. <laughs> so I want to correct that. Um, but thank you so much, Sue. And, you know, as you were talking, I, um, you know, I was just thinking back of my own experiences, you know, of, and again, this question of enough, um, you know, which we, you know, truly argue is a, you know, a Douglas experience of self. Um, and I remember, in you know, being in, in primary school, um, I believe I was in standard five and my teacher, she didn't come that day. So the vice principal, you know, he came to the class. I'm not sure what he was talking about. Somehow, you know, he was like, you know, well, all the Douglas in the class stand up. <laughs> um, and I stood up because, you know, I was so proud in that moment, you know, to, to you know, to be, you know, who who I was, who I am, you know, coming from, you know, an Afro-descended mother, an Indo-descended, you know, um, father. And I stood up and he told me to sit down. <laughs> he said, no. Um, he said, no, you, you don't look Douglas enough. And I remember he let this one boy you know rem- you know stand up this this boy was actually sitting down and he told him to stand up right because apparently he looked Douglas, <laughs> right and i you know this thing is, i remember this thing you know i mean you know when we talk about you know being you know Douglas as a privilege but also you know challenge trauma right and i know this um this incident, you know, it doesn't compare to, you know, some of the stories that our respondents, you know, told us, you know, some of the trauma that they very much experienced. But something like that, you know, it, it, it remains with you. <laughs> you know, um, if I'm not Dogla, then, you know, what what am I? You know, and I've been to places as an adult, you know, in Trinidad, and I went to a fete and somebody came up to me. And said, you know what, you would make a nice Indian woman, you know, if you know, if you if you if you if you hid your hair. Like if I didn't show my hair, I would make a nice Indian woman, you know. And you know, Alim at the beginning you spoke about, you know, you know, Trinidadians, right? <laughs> we come out and we say what we gotta say. And you know, this is what the Dogalum, you know, has to negotiate, you know, very much, you know, daily. So, you know, this question about enough. 
as Sue said, am I, you know, mixed enough? That was our that was our first question. That was the question that, you know, underscored this in, entire book and, and this research. Because, you know, is it again, as I had mentioned before, is it phenotype? Is it genotype? You know, genotypically, I am Dogala, but phenotypically, you know, society is telling me, you know, I am not enough. And I had something that I think we should kind of draw a lean into uh, for consideration. So the phenotype is very important, which is why we were kind of forced at one point, and it happened during a focus group where a guy entered, and he's actually not Dogla in terms of mixed with Indian and African. He 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 is not mixed with Indianness, right? Because as you would see in the book, we say you must be mixed with Indianness in order to be Dogla. Because in Trinidad and the Caribbean, you do have a lot of mixes with Africanness, and you could look anyhow. But to be Dogla, you must have that Indian element in your in your history. But this guy came into the room and and all the Douglas in the room thought he was a Douglas because he looked like a Douglas, whatever that look may be. And he was like, well, you know, not really, you know, but people always say it to me because for him, he was modified enough that mixedness is read on his body. But the other side of it is when one is reading your phenotype or your embodiment of mixedness, uh, there is also beyond the physical a, a socio-political element to it. And and in terms of who you affiliate with, who you are lo- where your loyalties lie, and thus where you can have a voice and a say and how you are accounted for, sometimes even how people speak in front of you as if you were not there or ask you questions as if it wouldn't be something that would make you, you know, step back a little bit and say, excuse me, um, so people sometimes feel very comfortable making racist statements or asking you most personal private details about who you are because of curiosity mm-hmm. or questioning how you identify and why you identify and your loyalties. Yeah. And of course, in front of that, you know, the most important question, you know, well, well, who you're voting for? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who you're voting for. Yeah. And that's very poignant for Douglas because it, it you know, if you if you experience that once in a blue moon, it's not so stressful. But if it happens when it happens all the time across context, it, it starts to become it starts to become tiresome. Um and just by way of an example, I was in a in a space with um with a with a particular person and that person said to me well you know i don't know where your loyalties lie you know because you um you not you kind of make you mix up now you're not pure so what side you really rest on and for me at the time i i i, I low-key uh felt quite insulted because i thought well it was very apparent who I am and where I am. But then as I reflected on it, of course, I, I, I know why intellectually, but personally for somebody just to be so frank to say, well, they don't trust you because they think you wouldn't be loyal to their side or another side or whatever side they have interest in. Uh, when you don't think that's even part of your experience, that's some of the the the, implic- the socio-political implications of enoughness, not just in terms of, how one identifies or is identified, but how one is read socially, culturally, and politically. Um, very good points. I'll have to uh, unpack there. Uh, one of the um, things I w- uh, I'm hoping you could expand on 
and for people who might not be familiar with the political situation in Trinidad and the division that exists, you know, why is a question of who you're voting for, it, it, it prevents such a conflict um, to, to Douglas? Both Aliyah and I can answer this for you really well. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to jump in real quick, like a frontish mm-hmm. person. <laughs> Go ahead, Sue. And bring up an example that happened today. This morning, I was at a meeting of a, a global planning uh, steering committee to develop a network of scholars and activists and advocates working to understand and explicate anti-Blackness. And it was very a very, very skilled and, you know, lauded group of, of scholars and activists from Latin America, Caribbean, Africa, uh, I think uh, Europe, other pl- I, I can't remember all the spots. Anyway, we were having a conversation and as they were trying to do a mapping of agents and scholars and agencies and so forth who are working on anti-Blackness, one person proposed political party representation because for them in Africa in particular, there were some political parties who are doing quite a lot of work. But most people disagreed and said, you know what, this is not a good idea anywhere in the world. In Trinidad and Tobago, political parties, unfortunately, and it's rooted in that history that Aliyah was doing so well to uh, clarify for us, it didn't come from nowhere. It has a. It started very much in colonialism, um, in tribalism. When I when I say that, I mean um, uh, divisiveness around ethnicity and race, and to some degree, religion is deployed in order to gain support, and it reflects a divisiveness that people may not actually live, but it becomes harnessed and manipulated and um, and and uh, man- uh, what should i say magnified during election periods because of the desire to win and it has been so historically so when one is dogla where you're in the middle or when one as as we in my family say when you're a potong because you have so many different influences <laughs> <laughs> and people you know quarreling about where they lie because of their ethno-racial uh, uh, leanings, you kind of, they're saying, you know what, let me just stay quiet. This is fall business and I'm a cockroach. Uh, just to reference uh, a local colloquialism because you don't, again, you, you, you will encounter people questioning your loyalties. So as that global conversation around the political, inf- that is party politics, representational politics, that these these groups are power rest in interest, and these interests maneuver ethno-racial uh, divides that are very much steeped in colonialism and histories of colonialism, and it becomes very difficult. Over to you, Aliyah, to add some, add some weight to that. No, I, I, you know, I, I think you said it all there, you know, and this is why the Dogola is very much you know, caught in the, the middle Right. We see that our politics, it, it is, you know, um, part of our colonial legacy. Right. Particularly, you know, um, Trinidad and Tobago and the cusp of independence. Right. In 1950s, you know, there are two major political parties in Trinidad, the People's National Movement or the PNM, which, of course, um, the, um, 
which is the ruling party today in TNT, and then the Democratic Labour Party, which would um, later become the United Labour Front. Um, and of course, in the contemporary political scene, the United National Congress. And we see that, you know, the two major political parties, the PNM and the UNC, have been organized, you know, mainly around, you know, the African or Creole communities on one hand, and of course, you know, the East Indian community on the other hand. Um, so we see that, you know, we, we live this colonial legacy, you know, very much um, today. Um, as one scholar had um, put it, we see that, you know, um, these, um, the, in the, the elections um, right before independence, you know, um, they describe it as the battle for the colonial inheritance, right? And we see, of course, you know, the Indian population, you know, being very much discontented with Eric Williams and the PNM. And of course, this this discontentment was very much rooted in, of course, you know, fear, right? Fear of political party neglect, fear, of course, of, you know, their interests, you know, being neglected, you know, as well, fear of erosion of their cultural identity. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm not saying that this fear was unfounded, particularly in the ways that, you know, Williams very much sought to, you know, construct this um, sort of, you know, independence, um, this sort of identity around, you know, the, you know, the Creole, right? Um, some sort of, I don't want to use the word Creole nationalism, that's more aligned to like Jamaica and the, the Manlies over there. But again, I'm not saying the fear was very much, um, there was no reason for it. But we see that while political power, you know, it has largely been held in the hands of Afri African descended men in Trinidad. You know, we did have the election of Bastio Pande, right, of the UNC in 1995 and Kamal Pasad Besasa in 2010. And of course, you know, again, as I mentioned before, the Douglas is very much caught in the middle, right? Who are you voting for? Are you going to, are you voting for the Afro, the Creole supported PNM? Or are you voting for the, you know, the East Indian supported, you know, UNC, right? Um, and, you know, it's about, you know, not just political power, right? Um, in, in that way, right? But it, it's also about, you know, sort of protecting each group sort of protecting themselves you know from from erasure so or what they believe may be erasure cultural erasure in in some way so you know where does the Douglas, you know lean or stand you know Douglas is very much in the the middle of this right um are you aligned to the pnm then apparently it says something about you as suan had mentioned right these sort of socio-political um, sort of nuances. Are you aligned with the UNC? Well, I guess I, I guess it says something about you, you know, as as well. Right. Um, yeah, thanks uh, so much for elaborating on that. Um, I, I want to move the conversation along. I, I guess from tribal politics onto uh, more cultural politics, uh, as you say in the book, um, specifically when it comes to hair. Um, I remember you mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation to be dogla, you know, the body must be sufficiently modified. And as you said in the book, more and more uh, online and in, in social media, we see the topic of hair and views around hair being a particularly contentious issue. 
And in the book, you talk about the cultural politics of here and its status as a symbol of ethno-racial privilege, you know, the good, the, the nice dogla here. So why was it important, you know, to explain um, this cultural politics of here as it pertains to the dogla identity? And can you, you know, elaborate more on the underlying dynamics? Uh, sure, Alim, and I'll start off as we've been doing and, and kind of share this conversation with Aliyah. When Aliyah and I started to talk about what uh, most reliably leads to a Dogla identification, because as we know, Doglas are featured by quite a lot of complexity, nuance, and variation uh, just across the board. But here... And other scholars have also found it. Uh, and all of the names are not coming to me, but the other scholars which are mentioned in the book, hair is one is is the most, one might argue, or we would argue, reliable marker of Dogla mixedness. Why? Because skin color is unreliable, as one may vary, and body features and so forth may vary. Though Douglas do try to explain some trends. There are some trends across uh, Douglas that say, oh, yeah, this is a little feature. But hair is definitely remarkably significant. Uh, but from the moment, the reason why those cultural politics are really important is where hair becomes a serious marker of enoughness. And other phenotypical markers can modify how that hair marks enoughness. We cannot speak outside of the larger politics of Afro-textured or relatedly Afro-textured hair, hair touched by Afro-texture. Because Dogla hair, the nice Dogla hair, as people say in, 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 in Trinidad and Tobago and other places, is curly or curly kinky hair. Sometimes it's curly wavy, which, by the way, other black bodies wear. This hair is plentiful, it's thick, it's, it's sometimes unruly and is subject to a lot of the taming and grooming practices that one encounters within one's family, within the school, and within other social institutions. So fundamentally, what then is that hair becomes not only that reliable phenotypical marker, but it becomes a source again of that privilege uh, uh, trauma experience or response depending on who encounters one's hair and what one's hair looks like or what, or how one cares for it. So that is how we then entered into the available literature on this kinky, curly, wavy hair. Another thing with mixedness, of course, is that on one head you have all of the above textures. So it becomes very complicated because the hair signals that one is marked by mixedness, particularly by Indianness, as one because of that responsive default. But the hair also signals beauty and value and and exoticness and and difference and so much more that. Converse, that has a conversation with blackness as well around beauty and value and bodies and so much more that the Dogla encounters. Um, uh, Aliyah, uh, I think that's something that we spend a lot of time contemplating. 
No, definitely. And again, this is why our question, you know, am I mixed enough? It's, it's so important. It's so significant, right? Um, you know, just personally, for me, this is why, you know, I questioned if I was mixed enough. It was a, it, it was the hair. <laughs> is my hair, you know, Douglas enough? Is it curly enough? Is it curly kinky enough, right, to qualify me as, as Douglas? And, you know, many of our respondents also, you know, um, spoke of, you know, their own experiences um, with regards to questioning their enoughness as it relates to, you know, the texture of their hair. Um, you know, as Sue had, had mentioned, you know, you can have one family and, you know, and everyone has a different, you know, texture hair, you know, some kinky curly, some kinky, some curly, some, you know, the, the curl is loose, looser than, you know, than than others. And I think this is why it was important for us to you know, to, to do these interviews, right? We interviewed, was it over 100 Douglas, right, Sue? In uh, Trinidad um, and New York. Or am I exaggerating? <laughs> it was over 100. I can't remember. It was 100, right? Like, yeah, one, it was quite a lot. Yeah, because we wanted to hear, you know, we wanted their voice. We wanted to them to, you know, to, you know, in their own voice to, to tell us, you know, about, you know, their own experiences as it relates to, you know, enoughness. And here, the issue of the topic of hair was one of those. Um, of course, you know we, we we can we can leave out, you know, in in any way. Yes, and by the way, these hair stories, if we want to call them that, are not only relevant to women who you know spend a lot of time negotiating their hair styling, maintenance, treatment, but it also influenced. It also related to men's experience. Uh, because of what it meant for their identities, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that you sh- that we should also keep in mind that this is across the board um, th- how hair impacts identification, identity, belongingness. Definitely, and you know, I'm reminded of that one interview of you know the the young man. I think it was two young men speaking, or a young man speaking about you know a, a, a guy that he he knew he knows. And, you know, him being surprised that that guy actually uses texturizer in his hair, right, to loosen the curl, right? Because, you know, having a particular type of, you know, hair, curly hair, was very important to how he identified, you know, how he, you know, negotiated himself, you know, as Douglas or as mixed in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask um, related to the hypersexualization and eroticizing of mixedness. And there's a specific phrase you used in the book, I believe, um, Dogla Fire, which I um, actually haven't heard before. So I'm wondering if we could, um, you know, um, explain um, this term um, and also um, how sexuality uh, for for a Dogla, it, we see it, uh, as you explain in the book, often defined by markers of embodied Indianness and blackness. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing a little there because actually were quite surprised at how the respondents made salient this idea of of sexuality and the Dogla fire. You know, we 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 genuinely were not even thinking about it, but they made it relevant to their lived experience, especially in Trinidad and Tobago. And essentially, Dogla fire referred to this 
presumption or assumption within the society that Douglas uh, have an insatiable appetite if they are women for you know sex and that they and that they are well lubricated and that they are always willing to engage in sexual activity. This is apparently a presumption about Dogla women and that presumption to go back to how it's an embodiment of Indianness is also a presumption that supposedly Indian women carry, that that's a feature. And once that feature combines with their Africanness, which is strength and resilience, and they could, you know, really, uh, uh, they have a lot of stamina, then the Dogla woman becomes this ideal. In terms of, as it was explained to us, in terms of the, the male Dogla, uh, there is this idea about his, you know, attractiveness and his prowess and his ability to perform sexually because he, as one person said, he has the sweet wine and the hard pong. And I think we have the quote <laughs> here in the yeah, book. Yeah, I remember. Yes. And I mean, we could not put it aside because we saw how it became gendered, but it also became very much that intersection between gender, sexuality, sex, and ethnicity. And so that privileging we've been talking about, there is a general consensus that, you know, mixed people are quite beautiful, uh, which is problematic in a sense, because if one is not considered beautiful and one is mixed, then how does one um, encounter one's mixedness? But there is this presumption that, you know, if one, once one is mixed, one is beautiful and desirable and a lot of mixed people, be they doglers or or other forms of mixedness, then see themselves put at in a hierarchy of beauty or in hierarchy of desirability um, at the top or near the top. And, and I think one of the young ladies explained what it was like in her high school, you know, who came first, who came second, who came third and so forth, and Douglas were high up there. And a lot of times it is because of this fable or reality or... Or, or, or tale that has been told that somehow Douglas are very much hypersexual, and that hypersexuality refers to the Douglas fire. And even and you know what was surprising for us, and I remember sitting one night, Aliyah and I was working through the data where we got it from young Douglas, and we even got it from older Douglas who were like, yeah, 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 I hear that, you know, I hear about the Douglas fire. We have the fire, you know. And so that's why you see we put that label in there because um, it's very interesting contemplation, which we couldn't elaborate more, but definitely an element that can be, as with everything else, quite privileging or quite risky when it comes to gender-based violence and sexual violence. So yes, the doglify is hypersexuality and hyper-eroticism. Yeah, and like, so, you know, I had never heard about this fire. <laughs> I never heard about it. <laughs> I think this is why the book is important because you know, it's you know, it's it's their voice. It's their voice. It really, really is. I had never heard about the fire. I was so intrigued, you know, by the fire. <laughs> and as um, as Sue had mentioned, you know, it's not just you know, Dougal women who are you know hypersexualized and eroticized. Um, also, Dougala, you know, men, you know, as well. 
And, you know, um, you know, I remember th- this one interview, the young man talked about being a GT boss. You know, he could pick up girls for himself. He could pick up girls for the people, <laughs> you know, um, because, you know, it's the expectation, um, you know, that as, you know, he, he is Dougala, it means that he can very much satisfy, you know, sexually, you know. Um, I think Sue said it all, but I just wanted to say that I hadn't heard about the fire and um and i think this is why this book is important it's it's, re- it's pretty much their voice the dugler voice yes um on that note you know there's um so much other questions i could you know go into and uh, with regards um to the book uh, but we're on the hour so i think we're gonna have to start wrapping up so um on that note, I'll ask, you know, what key takeaways um, would you like um, persons who read your book um, to, to, to glean from it? Um, and any of you could go. Um, okay, I will go uh, first. Um, for me, it's the pressing assertion that the Douglas have made. One, a Douglas is just Douglas. Nothing more, nothing less. That complexity, that nuance, that variability, that uniqueness, that range of ways of being and doing is Dogla, and one must, and that must be embraced as a way of living uh, ethnicity. That is one thing I think should be taken away, and this, and the second thing I think should be taken away is um, that where one is bearing Dogla offspring that this complexity, this just Douglas and the necessary maneuvering that Douglas explained to us as part of their lived experiences in the now, in the contemporary, that parents and family members and friends should account for that in the lives of young people, children, teens, adults, uh, to help them have more of the joys and the happy experiences of self and less of the traumatic and that regurgitation of these colonial traumas. I think that call is really important. So that would be what I would say is the takeaways I would want a people to have when they read Dogla in the 21st century. Yeah, I agree with, with Sue. Um, and you raised the points I would have raised um, but especially the second point, um, the last chapter in our book, Raising a Douglas Child, um, I think that's a big, a big takeaway. Um, and we spoke about, you know, um, loving these children, you know, as Sue said, you know, so that their experiences would be less of, you know, less trauma, right? Less of the challenges, right? So, you know, anyone who's listening here who, you know, is raising a Douglas child, you know, love your child. Right. We speak about positive reinforcement. We speak about, you know, um, sort of like, you know, showing this child, you know, like where they're from, who they're from. Right. I mean, I'm speaking, you know, you know, even culturally. Right. Having a child be, be aware of, you know, of, of, of all of their mixedness and in all of its glory. Right. But, you know, loving your Douglas child, love your child. That that would be the greatest takeaway for me. And yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end it on that um, 
positive note, I'll just um, conclude by asking, you know, what's next for you both? Um, are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in the book in any way? Any new material you're currently working on that you want to share? Um, please um, let me know. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we're ready to share, Sue. <laughs> we do have, we do no. want to continue this work on Dogala. Um, are we ready to share, Sue? It's an idea. No, we are not. We've been <laughs> okay, that's okay. You don't have to share. But if you haven't, you know, we, we're going to continue working on Dogala. Um, you know, particularly this idea of Dogala-ness as privilege, but also trauma. So, yeah, yeah so we, we're continuing to work on this. And contemplating how space and places, you know, spaces and places are really relevant. Uh, but in terms of just pursuing it, uh, it, it takes some time, you know, this conceptualization, because as I said, the five years that we spent to, from the moment we sat together contemplating, what does this all mean? We do spend a lot of time because we want the stories to be as poignant and touching and as enlightening and educational. Uh, but we continue to work hard. And as soon as we have something, of course, it'll be out there. Well, mm -hmm. The time you put into the work, um, it definitely shows in, in the quality of the book, uh, the articulation of your responses uh, this evening. It was an incredibly enlightening, illuminating uh, conversation. And whenever you're ready to share more on that future work, I would love to have both of you on again. Of course. Thank you. Thank you, Alim. Thank you so much. Oh, and one, one last note, sorry. Um, could you let everyone know where they could find Dogla in the 21st century? Well, it's currently on Amazon. So go to Amazon.com, you know, search the book. It's there. Um, you can also purchase it from the publisher, which is what I should have said first, <laughs> University <laughs> of Mississippi Press. <laughs> um, I believe it's in bookstores in Trinidad, right, Sue? It's in the UE Bookstore? Bookshop. Yes, you can get it at the UE Bookshop. And I know that they were sending it to others, but there was a little run out because, you know, of the pandemic and trade and stuff. Mm -hmm. But now you know, things have refreshed, I suppose it will come a little more. So if you're entering that in Tobago and you can't find it, you know, uh, University of Mississippi Press or Amazon, mm -hmm. get your copy. In that right. order. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And where can we find you? You guys online, on social media, anything like that? You know, just visit us at our universities. <laughs> Okay. okay. You may find me. I'm on LinkedIn, so you may find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, yes. I I'm on social media, but all my social media is private, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. But you can find me at the IGDS on the IGDS website. You know, send me an email, uh, contact me there, and I will respond. Um, but in terms of social media, I tend not to. I'm not so much of a social media user, to be quite honest. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, but well, the link. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's fine. Uh, thanks again for uh, for engaging me in conversation for what I think is turned out to be a really great podcast. And you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Thank you so much, Aleem. Thank you.